Well, thanks very much for coming uh, to this book launch. You know, I, I realise it's a really warm evening, and you know, you might be out at the bar or, or watching uh, watching tennis. Um, so, thanks for coming. Um, it feels to me that kind of looking at the people here, I'm looking through a lens of my own life, uh, but you you may not recognise some of the other people here. So, I went to this. Um, I went to, uh, when I was in New York, I visited a place called the Abyssinian Baptist Church, which is a really big uh, black church in, uh, uh, where is it, Tim? Harlem. Um, and uh, what happened there was that newcomers were greeted by people who were already, already there. So I'd like, to, I'd like, just before we go any further, if there's anybody here you don't recognise, just, just say hello to them and, and introduce yourself. Would you mind just doing that? And welcome them. Welcome them here. Okay, great. Yeah, and may, maybe you can talk more during the, the tea break as well. Um, but I just thought it'd be nice to, you know, welcome people, particularly those people who haven't been in the centre before, or perhaps who've only been once or twice, or perhaps who haven't been for some time. Uh, yeah, um, I have to say that preparing some notes, uh, the, the talk this evening, it's not really going to be a talk like the talks that I've given on the previous weeks. I'm not going to walk up, up and down, for instance. Um, it's, really, it's really a talk about launching my book, so I'm hoping that you've not, you're not expecting something different from that. But as I was preparing my notes, I was actually finding it, it was taking a lot of effort and energy to sort of prepare something to say this evening, and I was thinking, God, why is that? And I was thinking, uh, well, a metaphor came to mind, which was that I feel a little bit like a boxer coming out for the 15th round. And I've taken a lot of punishment. And this is the final, the final round. I've just, got to, I've just got to stand up, keep punching for the final round, and then it will be done. That's kind of how it's felt a little bit, really, um, producing this book. Uh, I'll say a bit more about that later. So I do feel a little bit... Punched out, I think, is the uh, the appropriate phrase right now. But hopefully, I'll say something that is, to some extent, interesting. You know, over the course of the next twenty minutes or so, I actually thought as well that you know, aside from, I thought I'd say something about um, you know what the book's about. Clearly, uh, why I've written the book, and something about my approach to it. You know, the structure of it, the style of it, that kind of thing. Uh, but I thought that in doing that as well, it might be useful to read out one or two short passages, which I hope might whet your appetite a little bit. You know, it might, you might feel, oh, I've really got to go and buy that book later on. You know, I've really got to get a copy of that. Or maybe not. But um, let's hope that's how you feel. So I thought I'd start by reading a, a very short passage, actually. And this is, uh, well, I've called this, I've called this a prologue. So I'm going to read this out suddenly feel quite nervous reading my book out. I first came across Mahayana Buddhism when I was about 10 years old. I began following a comic and rather bizarre TV serial about a Chinese Buddhist monk en route to India. The show was called Monkey and was based on the 16th century Chinese epic Journey to the West. The epic itself was inspired by the historical pilgrimage of Xuanzang, who undertook this long, dangerous and difficult journey in search of missing scriptures. The narrative drew specifically on Buddhist themes and amidst the slapstick battle scenes and general comic mayhem, pinches of dharma were sprinkled in. Such as, The Buddha taught, Whatever you do, you do to yourself. 
We want so much when we need so little, but the illumined man wants for nothing. All this delivered in a suitably grave oriental accent. I didn't do the accent there, but... um. In the very first episode, Monkey meets the cosmic Buddha, who appears in female form and is huge. He then summons a cloud, flies away, and believing he has reached the end of the universe, stops at five pillars to relieve himself, then scribbles some graffiti to prove he has been there. Feeling very pleased with himself, he looks round to discover that he is still standing on the Buddha's hand and has just desecrated her fingers. With adult eyes, I can see that this is a comic reference to the Buddha nature teaching, but I can't recall what I made of it then. With all its craziness, who knows what Buddha seeds monkey planted in my febrile mind. Maybe some of you have seen monkey too. Um, I was... uh, Actually, I don't know if you, any of you saw this, but there was a, an opera called Monkey that was uh, performed for the first time in Manchester a couple of years ago. And the guy who wrote it is about the same age as me, and I, I think he must have been sitting in front of the TV watching Monkey at exactly the same time as I was. That was uh, Damon Alban, by the way, musician. Yeah, so... Um, for some of you, you know, I've got this book here, I've, I've got this book here which is called Visions of Mahayana Buddhism. This is it here. See that cover? Looks good, doesn't it? (laughs) Personally, I can always tell a book's good because it smells good. It smells very, very good, this. And this one as well is actually quite heavy as well. You know, it feels like it's got quite a lot in it. I'm not sure whether that's true or not, but it feels very, very heavy. Uh, But yeah, visions of Mahayana Buddhism. So the question is, what is Mahayana Buddhism? Uh, well, the book tells you, but uh, I thought for the, for the purposes of some kind of introduction, I could perhaps say a few words about that. Uh, I know some of you have been to all of the talks, so you're, you're quite tuned into that, but some of you will perhaps have no idea uh, what Mahayana Buddhism is. So what is Mahayana Buddhism? I think that if you asked anyone on the streets, you know, what is Mahayana Buddhism, they would probably say, I've got absolutely no idea. Um, unless you bumped into, say, Vishpahani or Upekshapriya or something, they, they would probably have an idea. But most people would have little or, or no idea at all. They probably never even heard the word Mahayana before. Yeah, if you ask them, uh, you know, what's Tibetan Buddhism? They'd probably scratch their head a little bit and they'd probably say, well, I don't know, the Dalai Lama has something to do with it. Uh, maybe. They wear purple robes. They'd probably say something like that. Or, or if, if you said, well, you know, what's Zen? They probably say something like, uh, it's Japanese, it's got something to do with simplicity, tea ceremonies, I don't know, stuff like that. They probably say that. So th- these are things that they know about, and yet they wouldn't know anything about Mahayana Buddhism. That seems to me to be very strange, uh, because actually Zen Buddhism is a form of Mahayana Buddhism. Um, and Tibetan Buddhism, uh, to a significant degree, derives from Mahayana Buddhism. In other words, its teachings are largely based on Mahayana Buddhist teachings. And yet, this term Mahayana Buddhism is unfamiliar. And in fact, when I was trying to um, find publishers for the book, um, I wrote to a couple of publishers. And I mean, they may have been saying it just to kind of, uh, just to fob me off. You know, this is what publishers do. They sort of write back nicely and say, well, your project sounds very interesting, but it sounds too specialised for us. I mean, that could mean we thought it was crap. 
Uh, but it, it, it could mean that, that actually the, the, the term, the concept of Mahayana Buddhism has no reference for them, no resonances for them. And again, I found this really, really strange because I think many publishers, if you presented a book on Zen Buddhism, they wouldn't say, well, that sounds very, very specialized. They sound, they say, oh, that, that sounds about something quite important, quite a, a major theme. So this, this idea, this term Mahayana Buddhism is, is really not very well known. And I'm not really sure that I can answer why that is, you know, what the explanation for that is. I think there are probably quite a lot of um, reasons of cultural accident that, that mean that we don't really have a familiarity with the term Mahayana Buddhism, and yet we do have a familiarity with terms like Zen and Tibetan Buddhism. And so perhaps we're moving towards, to, moving towards at least one justification uh, for writing the book, you know, uh, to, to share knowledge, to share understanding of what, what Mahayana Buddhism is. That's kind of one of the reasons, really. Uh, but I haven't actually told you anything, really, apart from saying that Zen and Tibetan Buddhism, to some extent, derive from Mahayana Buddhism. So what is it? Uh, well, the Mahayana means uh, great way uh, or great vehicle. And as those of you that have been attending my talks will know, it is the second of three major phases, or at least this is how historians have tended to see it, the second of three, three major phases of Buddhist development. So the first major phase being what I call Nikaya Buddhism. And this is the Buddhism that, uh, well, to some extent the Buddha practiced, but particularly the period that followed the Buddha. And in sort of textbook accounts, this is seen as around about the first 500 years of Buddhist development, really, um, after the Buddha. And it, it kind of, well, up to about the common era. And in some textbook accounts, this phase then gave way uh, to the second phase, uh, which was Mahayana Buddhism, which we're, we're, we're dealing with here. Um, and that the period of its development is, being, is seen as being between the common era and, and uh, around about the year 500 uh, uh, and just to fill in the complete picture, the third phase is called the Vajrayana, which, uh, or Tantric Buddhism, and that is seen as relating to the period from about 500 to about 1000, the common era. But if you've been to the talks, you'll have seen that actually I presented a picture that showed that it wasn't really like that at all, um, or certainly wasn't as neat as that. And uh, Mahayana Buddhism took a long time to catch on um, in its country of birth, which was India. Um, and it may be that it only really caught on uh, in, any, in any major way after it had become important in other places, including parts of Central Asia and China. Um, so just to kind of characterise Mahayana Buddhism, it's a little bit hard for me to do right now because I spent the last four weeks doing it, so to kind of try just try and bring it into a few phrases is quite tricky, but... I would say, uh, in its broadest terms, uh, Mahayana Buddhism is concerned to, uh, to contextualize the life of the individual Buddhist within uh, the life of the whole cosmos. And in particular, to contextualize the process of the individual's spiritual awakening uh, within the context of the awakening of the entire cosmos. So our awakening, our individual awakening, is in some important senses connected with uh, the awakening of all beings in all worlds at all times. It's not just us and our little day-to-day -day practice. 
what we're doing is playing out on a cosmic stage. On a, on a, we're, we're participating in a cosmic drama. Our role is maybe quite small, uh, but there, there are billions and trillions and billions of beings who are also participating in this cosmic drama of universal awakening. For me, this is what is key, or perhaps the most central thing, about Mahayana Buddhism. And that is uh, summed up, or that is embodied, in the Mahayana Buddhist ideal, which is called the Bodhisattva ideal. The Bodhisattva being uh, the awakening being, uh, the being who is bent on awakening, who wants to awaken not just for him or herself alone, uh, but wants to awaken to help all beings to become awakened. They want to awaken all beings everywhere, in all worlds, at all times. So it's very, very ambitious, a very ambitious ideal, but also, I think, very, very inspiring. Besides this, um, this scripting of the individual's uh, spiritual life within this cosmic drama, uh, Mahayana Buddhism emphasises a great deal uh, the role of uh, cosmic uh, figures, cosmic Buddha figures, um, who may appear across many different world systems and who have untold powers, uh, who have untold spiritual merit and who can reach down to us or reach out to us and help us to become awakened because they have fulfilled the Bodhisattva path. They have gone through this process of uh, awakening uh, on behalf of all beings. And in fact, the figure that we've got on the shrine uh, is called uh, Amitabha or in, uh, in Japanese Amida, uh, and Amida is uh, the Buddha of Light in some depictions. He's, he's in fact, in a depiction in the book because it's got colour pictures. Uh, if you see in the book, there's a colour picture of Amida and he has this golden light pouring off him in all directions. And, in fact, just to kind of continue with the, the picture in the book, he's surrounded by all kinds of uh, figures and bodhisattvas and devotees of different kinds and he's welcoming all beings, he's inviting all beings to come and live, to come and dwell in his transcendent realm, uh, which is called Sukhavati, which means um, uh, happy, happy place, happy world, something like that. Um, uh, and it's also known as the Pure Land. So, a Mahayana Buddha, this is this is what they do. They they sometimes uh, preside over this this perfect realm uh, in which awakening can take place. And they try to invite and welcome in all beings into that realm so that they too can become awakened. And seemingly all we need to do is we need to uh, maybe recite Amida's name and we will be reborn into his pure land. How fantastic is that? That's all you need to do. And if you read, well, actually if you read the book, you'll realise that maybe it's not quite as straightforward as that, but... In one sense, it is. Um, yeah, so that's something about the nature of Mahayana Buddhism, anyway. Um, so, I, I should have said, or I don't know if Ratnaguna did say, if maybe when I finish my little talk, if you've got any questions, you know, we could have a few questions, see if there's anything that comes up. Um, so, why did I write this book? Um, well, it arose out of a, a lecture series or a lecture course that I was doing at the, the University of Manchester. And the course, surprisingly enough, was on the topic of Mahayana Buddhism. And I did quite a lot of research for the course. But one of the things that I discovered uh, as I was doing my research was there were very few uh, books that gave 
some kind of, excuse me, some kind of general overview of Mahayana Buddhism. In fact, there was only one. Um, there is only one. As, I mean, please correct me, but I think there's only one. Um, and some of you probably got that book already. Uh, it's called Mahayana Buddhism uh, by Paul Williams, um, which I used as my core textbook. Um, and it's an excellent book. It's, uh, it's an amazing book. It's a very large book, a very long book, and a very dense book. Uh, but there's some fantastic material in it. But, but reading it, I thought, in fact, it was, my, it was students really saying this to me, that they said, well, you know, we're reading the Paul Williams book, and it's really, really difficult. We're actually finding it really difficult to follow the arguments, and uh, there's so much complexity, and, we're, you know, it's actually quite hard to follow this. And uh, that kind of made me think a little bit, really, because, uh, you know, I'd like to think, did you sit that course? No. Oh. Okay, I, I, I'd like to think... Uh, that the students at the university, you know, they're pretty bright, um, they're intelligent people, uh, but they were struggling with this. And so if they were struggling with it, I, I could only imagine that, you know, someone who didn't have some academic training would find it even more difficult, you know, and, and, and even less accessible. So it, it made me start to think, well, maybe there's scope for writing something different, a different way of uh, approaching Mahayana Buddhism. And in fact, while I'm about it, um, just very briefly, um, Paul Williams's book very much uh, focuses on Mahayana Buddhist doctrines, almost exclusively so. Um, it looks at the doctrine, well, it's called the Doctrinal Foundations, which, you know, there you go, it's all in, all in the title. And it's fantastic at that. Uh, but it doesn't really tell you much about what, what Mahayana Buddhists have done, you know, over the, over the centuries. It doesn't really tell you much or a huge amount about the cultural context in which uh, Mahayana Buddhist teachings and practices played out. Uh, it doesn't have any pictures. Um, it doesn't have any interesting, uh, I'd like to think, uh, any, any interesting little asides. Um, you know, it's, it's really quite dense stuff. Um, and so I thought, well, you know, there's room for quite a different approach here. And the other thing was, as well, uh, because Paul Williams is a, is, he's a kind of Tibetan linguist, much of the materials that he draws on are actually Tibetan materials. Yeah, so uh, he's looking at Mahayana Buddhism through a Tibetan lens, is what I'm saying. And that is really quite... Well, it's not, it's not that it's distorting. It's just one lens for looking at Mahayana Buddhism. And actually what it does, in his case what it does, is it largely excludes a great deal of East Asian Buddhism. Um, he does talk about it a bit, but his main emphasis is on, well, Sanskrit... Uh, Tibetan, sorry, Sanskrit textual sources and then often their Tibetan, uh, or the Tibetan versions because sometimes they only survive in t Tibetan, uh, Tibetan translations. So that's kind of his orientation and I want to offer something that's quite a bit broader and it, it became clear to me that, for instance, with our, within our Buddhist group, within the Friends of the Western Buddhist Order, we learn quite a lot about Tibetan Buddhism. We probably know quite a lot about that but actually I would... I would expect that most of us know almost nothing about Chinese Buddhism. And none of us, I would think, perhaps with the exception of Jung maybe over there, would know anything about Korean Buddhism. Um, I mean, may maybe some of you do, but I suspect that with a, with a small number of exceptions, we won't know very much. And even Japanese Buddhism, yeah, we've heard of Zen, but how much, how much about that do we actually really know? Probably not very much, because these are not things that we've emphasised in our, in our Buddhist group. But the more I studied and the more I researched, 
these, these fields of Buddhist practice and ideas struck me as being extremely rich and really, really valuable. And I got, I got more and more interested in these areas. And, and in fact, that's my main area of interest these days uh, in East Asian Mahayana Buddhism. And so I wanted to kind of write a book that kind of um, addressed some of this material and sort of did some justice to it. Um, so that's what I tried to do. Good. Yeah, I've uh, covered my notes quite well here. Yeah, I just wanted to say a bit about um, about um, the process of writing this book because I think I mentioned uh, the idea of you know having gone fifteen rounds uh, earlier on. Actually, there was another. There's another metaphor which I use in my acknowledgement, uh, and uh, the metaphor is uh, writing the book. I felt like a snake trying to swallow a buffalo. That's kind of what it felt like. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen an image of a snake swallowing a buffalo, but it's really quite an extraordinary sight. Uh, and, and I'm guessing that it's pretty hard work for the snake uh, to, to swallow that buffalo. Uh, because Mahayana Buddhism is so vast. You know, it covers 2,000 years of, of cultural history. Um, you know, its textual corpus is absolutely huge. You know, some people would say it's the largest... Um, uh, corpus of spiritual scriptures that has ever been created. Um, you know, it's, it's absolutely massive. Um, it spans, as I perhaps indicated a few moments ago, a huge geographical area, starting with India, spreading through Central Asia, into East Asia, and even parts of Southeast Asia. So it's kind of a huge thing to take on. And rather naively, I thought it would be quite easy to write a book about it. I thought, well, God, why haven't more people done this? You know, why, hasn't, why haven't more people written a, a kind of, uh, you know, general overview of Mahayana Buddhism? It's easy. You know, you just pick your chapters, come up with your chapter titles, away you go. Just fill in the details. You know, it's just painting by numbers. Uh, that's what I thought the first week. Um, <laughs> um, and, and, I, and I thought, well, you know, because it's a general book, I don't really need to know much. You know, I'll just read a couple of uh, encyclopedia articles, summarise those. Bob's your uncle, you know, that's, that, that, that'll do me. Uh, but what, <laughs> that's, that's how slack I am. Um, but uh, the, the more I uh, started to, to write and research, of course, what happened was, you know, any given topic, I'd read something, and then I'd read something else, and the two things disagreed. You know, one thing said, well, actually, it was like this. Another thing said, oh, it was actually, it was like that. And then and I think, oh, well, they disagree with each other. I better read another thing to, to, to see, you know, which one... You know, which one's right? And so I'd, I'd read another one. And that took a different view again, you know. And so after a while, I've got like three or four conflicting uh, interpretations. And I'm tr- I'm t- it's, like, uh, it's like you open this box and things are kind of coming out of it. And you're trying to squeeze them back into the box, but they won't go. And so, and so then you've got this vast amount of material that's just kind of proliferating and proliferating and proliferating. Vishwapani's nodding his head because he's writing a book at the moment as well. So I think we've, you know, I think we share something of the, the same experience there. So yeah, so it, it just becomes larger and larger and larger. And you think, well, I just wanted to write 500 words about this topic, and now I'm going to have to write a whole book just about this one thing. Um, so you know, constantly I was having to try and find a way, I think, of trying to demonstrate that I've got some awareness of the complexity of a to- topic, but at the same time not introducing all of that complexity because it would just be incredibly confusing and just leave too many loose ends. So, um, yeah, so, so on many occasions, you know, I've had to choose how I, how I want to see things, how I want to analyse things, hopefully sometimes recognising that that isn't the only way of seeing it. But that proves, you know, extremely difficult. And um, in the end, it's taken me uh, three years to write it altogether, which to me seems like 
a really, really long time. I mean, actually, in Mahayana terms, it's, uh, it's a really, really short time. And just to give you an idea of that, I just want to read you um, a little passage uh, from my book. This is about uh, Mahayana time. So, time in Mahayana scriptures is measured in kalpas, eons, or even mahakalpas, great eons. It's almost impossible to grasp how long these periods of time really are. One early scripture illustrates this by means of an image. If there are a solid stone mountain, a yojana in height, that's about four to nine miles. Again, you see, nobody knows. Could be four miles, could be nine miles, could be somewhere in between. Nobody knows how long a yojana is. Um, Okay, Um, I'll start that again. If there are a solid stone mountain, a yojana in height, and it was stroked once every hundred years with a piece of fine cloth, it would wear away before an eon came to an end. Right? So it would wear away before an eon came to an end. According to one text, it takes 3,000 million million great eons to accomplish the Mahayana path to awakening. <laughs> That's a long time. So three years is, is really not very much at all in the larger scheme of things. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I thought I'd say a bit more about my approach to the book, kind of give you some kind of overview of the, the structure of it and maybe how I'm looking at it um, a little bit more. In its, in its broadest terms, the book takes a historical approach, which, in, you know, in other words, it starts from the beginning and works its way through, um, which in one way maybe seems quite boring. You know, it seems like a very kind of obvious thing to do, start at the beginning, finish at the end. You know, couldn't I come up with a better structure than that? Um, and yeah, I could. I could have come up with a different structure. I could have taken a thematic approach, that is, looking at different topics. Um, in fact, I do that to some degree as well. But the reason why I chose to take a historical approach is, is, is really quite important. And the reason is that the way that I see it, Buddhist teachings, Buddhist practices, uh, Buddhist cultural forms uh, evolve from particular cultural contexts. They evolve out of particular cultural environments. So in other words, they can't be understood, they can't be grasped in isolation. They can't be grasped independently of those cultural conditions. To use a Buddhist way of talking about things, Mahayana Buddhist teachings arise in dependence upon conditions and without understanding those conditions, I don't think we can really understand those teachings. So in a way, that's kind of an underlying uh, conviction, if you like, behind the book, to try to, to some degree, lay bare the historical, cultural, and to some degree, philosophical uh, context uh, for the emergence of, uh, of Mahayana Buddhist teachings. So those of you that were at the talk last week heard me speak quite a bit about shunyata, the doctrine of emptiness. And a lot of what I was talking about there was how the doctrine of emptiness emerged out of a particular philosophical um, context. It didn't just pop up to somebody one day. It was actually part of a conversation. That conversation was going on for several hundred years, but it was a philosophical conversation that was unfolding over a long period of time. So what I would say is that if we're able to trace the development of Buddhist doctrines and practices, see where they came from, we start to understand why it is they look the way they do. Because actually some of them seem 
really, really strange. You know, when you first look at them, you think that is absolutely bonkers. Um, and to give you an example of that, let's take the example of the Zen koan. Um, Zen koan, which maybe a lot of you have heard this word koan, uh, but I rather suspect that far fewer of us have really got any grasp of what on earth a koan is, why on earth they're there, where they came from, what they mean, etc. And in fact, I'd like to read one to you. This is in the book, this one. This, uh, at least part of it is, this koan. So this is, this is a kind of Zen Buddhist teaching. All right? So ready for it. This should awaken you. A monk asked Yunmen, Yunmen was a Chan master, Zen master. A monk asked Yunmen, what is talk that goes beyond Buddhas and patriarchs? Yunmen said, cake. <laughs> well, I thought it was funny as well, yeah. <laughs> uh, um, so what's that about? You know, what is that about? I mean, you look at that and you think, no idea, that's just nonsense, it's just crazy. I'm not actually going to explain uh, that koan for now, uh, but if you read the book, I think that, I think if you read the book, you will get quite a good grasp on what that, what that encounter, what that dialogue is all about, what's going on there. At least I hope you will. Um, yeah, so to understand these teachings and practices, we need to learn about the historical context, and that's what I tried to do. So I'm hoping that if you do read the book, you'll actually find that process quite interesting, but, um, We'll see. Another thing that I've done in the book, apart from the general structure, is that I've introduced a series of what I, what I call features in the books. And these are kind of little, I think about them as little snapshots of Mahayana Buddhist life. They're just little short passages that describe something about um, Mahayana culture, Mahayana life. Things that you perhaps might not find in a regular general textbook because they're quite, sometimes quite quirky and sometimes quite unusual, some of the things I've picked up on. Uh, rather strangely, when I, was, uh, when I was trying to select a feature to read out for you, there was one that I was looking for in my book, because I thought, oh, this would be a good one to read out. And I had a look for it, and I thought, well, where's it gone? And then I realised, or then I discovered, that I'd forgotten to include it in the book. So this is an exclusive for this evening, um, a feature that I wrote for the book, but I forgot to put in it. Um, so, you, you know, you are the first to hear about this. Um, so this little feature uh, is called, uh, well, maybe you've heard it before, I don't know. It's, uh, it's about uh, blood writing. Blood writing. Copying out sutras has long been regarded as highly meritorious within Mahayana Buddhism. Many texts extol the benefits of copying and distributing scriptures. The Lotus Sutra, for instance, emphasizes that anyone who copies even a verse of its text is a spiritually advanced being. Copying sutras was a means to read, study and memorize a sacred text and, through doing so, to generate merit, which might then be dedicated to departed relatives. In China, devotees of particular sutras sometimes copied them out using a mixture of ink and their own blood. The justification for this practice comes from the apocryphal Brahmanet Sutra, which instructs, keep, read and recite the scriptures and monastic regulations of the great vehicle with a single mind. Cut away your skin for paper, draw your blood for ink and use your marrow 
for water. Break off a piece of your own bone for a pen and copy out the Buddhist scriptures. Blood writing is a form of self-sacrifice. The deliberate endurance of pain was regarded as spiritually, spiritually meritorious and admirable. An especially dedicated individual might copy out the entire Avatamsika Sutra, which in my English translation is about 2,000 pages long, using their own blood. Blood writing remained popular into the modern period. So these are little snippets, these are little nuggets that you can look forward to if you, uh, you, know, if you want to read the book. That's, um, that's something about blood writing, which actually I think is probably not one of the most you know, common of Mahayana Buddhist practices, but certainly was something that some people engaged in, have engaged in. Yeah, okay. Um, so the final thing that I wanted to do was... Um, uh, I've written here, why read the book? Uh, why read this book? I mean, maybe I've said something about that already, um, and maybe that's convinced you, maybe it hasn't. But um, just as a final thing, I thought I'd read you a little bit of my introduction, and this hopefully sets a little bit of the tone, uh, the, uh, sets the scene for the book, and, and then we'll see if there's, there's any questions. So I'll, I'll finish on this. So this is, uh, this is the introduction or the beginnings of it. Mahayana means the great way or great vehicle and refers to a powerful current of Buddhist thought, practice, art and culture that began to flow in India around the beginning of the common era and which continued for the next thousand years and beyond, spreading throughout Asia. It still flows today. It has produced literature on a colossal scale, given birth to a spiritual ideal that may be the most magnificent ever conceived, and inspired art and architecture which, where not destroyed, stand as wonders of the world. Mahayana Buddhism embodies an explosion of the spiritual imagination which continues to reverberate through the cosmos. This book seeks to open a portal or even a series of portals into this imaginative universe. But these portals disclose not just the doctrines that underpin Mahayana traditions, for ideas are condensations of spiritual imagination, which may function as sets of directions or even maps, guiding us towards the imaginative spaces that produced them. Just as C.S. Lewis's wardrobe functioned as a doorway into the magical dimension of Narnia, so the teachings of Mahayana Buddhism enable us to step across the imaginative, the imaginative threshold into its transcendent realm. They thus serve a liminal function, connecting us to a world of expanded significance, an immersive environment where we may soak in the reign of Mahayana wisdom. A second metaphor that may help in reading this book is that of pilgrimage. A pilgrimage is a religious odyssey which may follow a rigorous and perhaps dangerous itinerary through unknown and even unimagined terrain. As it is in many other religious traditions, pilgrimage is a time-honoured ritual practice within Buddhism and can be seen as a form of exteriorised mysticism. The faithful may travel vast distances and willingly endure many hardships to reach a site that holds religious significance and which may inspire profound transformation. Xuanzang, who I spoke about earlier, 
himself journeyed from India across to, sorry, from China across to India at a time when the fastest forms of transport were the donkey, camel, and ox cart. By means of his or her journey, the pilgrim may follow a symbolic itinerary towards awakening. A pilgrimage can function as a means of purification, of reconnecting with cherished values and aspirations, and may culminate in a spiritual rebirth. More generally, through visiting sanctified places, we may recall the life and world of the people who created them and how they lived out their ideals. We may thus reinvigorate the spiritual universe of the ancestors who trod the path before us. Sadly, much of the past has not been preserved in stone, in images, not even in ruins, and so has been lost beyond recovery. So many visionary ideas, compassionate gestures and records of awakening have vanished forever, perhaps burnt at the hands of some spiteful vandal or simply left behind by changing fashion, then buried by the sands of time. Thankfully, other aspects of the past have been recorded in writing, preserved on scraps of silk or parchment or etched in rock, sometimes in languages and scripts long since dead. Through deciphering and piecing together the clues these texts have left, we may reawaken some long-forgotten insights of ways of living and being that once stirred the imagination of vibrant spiritual communities. Such material enables a different kind of pilgrimage, not across continents into foreign lands, but into the recesses of the imagination to discover the spiritual treasure that may lie within. In the course of such a journey, we may stumble upon new visions, ideas, practices and customs, and in doing so, be transformed by them. For the recovery of forgotten texts, teachings and practices is not just a matter of piecing together physical remains, like gluing together the fragments of a manuscript, but also of psychic salvage, of plumbing the depths of the imagination to rediscover what lies buried there. History does not always reward the most creative or radical thinkers by remembering them. It is often the opposite. Those willing to compromise and toe the line endure. Those more daring and creative thinkers are, for this very reason, sometimes suppressed, since they represent a threat to the established order. As their missions fade, their memories may be forgotten. But one of the joys of studying Buddhist historical materials is that it allows us to imaginatively to revive some of these figures and even to hear their voices as they preach their unique vision of the Dharma. Delving through these particular archives, we are enabled to make our own pilgrimages, pilgrimages of the imagination, into the amazing world of Mahayana Buddhism, a world that dazzles with the radiance of perfect wisdom and cosmic benevolence. And just as the universe is said to be expanded, expanding into space, so through study, reflection and imagination, we may expand our own minds and, in doing so, be lifted into a higher state of awareness. Thanks.